With that, let's pray, and we'll look at our passage. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we thank you that it's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, Lord, the next couple weeks, there's some, uh, some hard passages dealing with um, very direct uh, confrontation of, of legalism and, and the ugly side of, of religion and how it hurts people. And so, Lord, we come to your word uh, as we examine these words of Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand uh, sort of the background to, to what Jesus is speaking about. Lord, that you would help us to see um, what he desired from his hearers. And Lord, may we, um, by your spirit, sort of gain or glean principles that apply to our own life. Father, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to stand in grace, to walk in grace. Um, as we just sang, Lord, that we would seek your heart, that we would um, that your heart would be our heart and that we would be um, compassionate and loving and Christ-like as we deal with one another. Um, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. <clears throat> then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they brought in their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels on their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that your spirit would guide us now. Help us, Lord, as we worship you through the studying of your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in verse one here. It begins with, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. This sort of sets the stage, the setting uh, we, we have to ask ourselves, uh, then, what happened? Then sort of implies that we're sort of picking up a story. Um, the, the, the previous section, really, I think, going back to chapter uh, 21, midway through 21, the end of 21, definitely in 22, uh, Jesus had made his way into the temple. It's the season of Passover. This is a huge um, celebration. The Jews from all over the world would and still do to this day descend on Jerusalem. And so they're there for this, this, this huge feast, this huge celebration, this day when they remember um, the, the passing over in Egypt. Remember back in Egypt, they were in slavery and finally they put blood on their doorpost and, and the Lord would pass over the, the houses that had the blood on the doorpost 
and those that didn't, the firstborn son would be taken uh, in all of the families. And so they remembered how God delivered them uh, from that, that season. Um, and so the, he's in the temple. He goes in there. He's, he's, he's teaching to his disciples, to the crowds who had, who had sort of come around him. They knew who he was. He had a reputation. And as he's teaching, he's confronted by the religious leaders. They ask, by whose authority are you doing this? Jesus asks him a question. I, I've reviewed this, I think, enough. You guys know how the story unfolded. He responds with a question. And then uh, th- they sort of go back and forth where they try to trap Jesus. And then Jesus turns the tables on them. And by the end of last week, they weren't able to say a word. And nobody dared question him again. And so the leaders are all put in their place from the scribes to the Pharisees to the Sadducees. Um, there were even the group of the Herodians who were following All of these groups were silenced by Jesus' wisdom, his authority, and his power, and they were done. And they they possibly moved on. They possibly were still standing there. Um, We we don't really know where they went. We know they were silenced. And then we're told, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. So as all of this is happening, there's the crowds of people who are onlooking this situation This would have been on the southern side of the temple. This was in the court of the Gentiles, a huge, huge open area. And so there's large crowds. And then there's Jesus' disciples, which would uh, obviously have meant his 12 disciples, but it also could have been extended. He had disciples. Earlier we saw that there were 70 disciples that followed. So there was a a larger group of people who were following him. They're onlookers, and then they're his followers. And to these people, he's going to say some things. He's going to speak all the way through the end of chapter 23. Some get confused between chapters 23, 24, and 25. If you have a Bible that has all of Jesus' words in red, then you have a bunch of red pages ahead of us. Um, Like reading out of red, it drives me crazy. I'm not used to seeing that, so I have black ink. But at the end of chapter 3, we have this discourse. This is sort of... um, you know, it's the bland discourse. There's five or six discourses in Matthew. Some of them have names, like uh, the Sermon on the Mount has a name. Then there's discourse number two. There's a discourse number three. Um, we believe that this is discourse number five. And then we get to 24, and then we have the Olivet Discourse. It gets a name. Um, so we'll see in uh, between the end of chapter 23 and the beginning of chapter 24, we see that they go out of the temple. They're beginning to walk back. And while they walk out, the disciples have some questions about Jesus concerning the end times. And and, and when is the messianic age going to happen? How is it all going to unfold? And so the Olivet Discourse happens in chapter 24 and 25. And then we see the whole, uh, the crucifixion story is going to start taking place. We're going to make our way through 23, then we're going to take an extended break in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, We will start chapter 24 in January, and the reason for that is chapter 24 to the end of Matthew coincides with uh, the Easter story, not so much the Christmas story. And so it just makes more sense to take a little break. Okay, back to our text here. So we have the crowds. Jesus speaks to the crowds and his disciples, and he says to them in verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. 
So to remind you, the Pharisees, there's, there's a bunch of different groups. The two main groups are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees sort of started last week. They were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's the oldest joke in the, past, the pulpit ministry, and, and it's an easy way to remember who they are. They were the religious liberals of the day, the Sadducees. They were the aristocrats. They were wealthy. Um, they were fewer in number, yet they exercised all of the power. They were really in control of the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Jewish Supreme Court. They controlled the temple. They controlled everything. But they were really sort of um, the, the religious liberals. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in anything beyond the first five books of the Bible. Um, and they really weren't liked by the average person. And then you had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were sort of the, the, the working man class of, uh, of the religious leaders. They, um, they sort of represented the bulk of Israel. They... they they had the most influence on the people. They were conservative and they did believe in miracles. They did believe in the whole of the scripture. They really controlled much of the teaching in, in the, the Bible. And then paired with them, we see the scribes. The scribes in some places, we, we encountered one last week that's referred to as a lawyer. And so the law was made up of the Old Testament that we call the Old Testament. They were a nation that was sort of their, their worship and how they governed themselves was all based on the scriptures. And so in our law, um, laws can be sort of complicated. I have no idea how many laws are in the state of California. None of us, even police officers don't. Like if you do a ride-along, there'll be a lot of times when somebody gets pulled over and they're like, I know this is a crime, but can you show me where it is? They're like going through their book and... Mm-mm. Let's call Joe. Maybe Joe knows. <laughs> like, and then, then finally, like, oh, yeah, it's penal code, such and such and such. And then they have the law. They're like, there it is. I know where it is. And so the scribes were sort of, before I go into being hard on them, we have so much to be thankful for the scribes. They, they were the ones who literally uh, recorded the scriptures, took it from oral to written. They were meticulous. Um, they, they didn't mess around. If... if if they were writing and a mistake was made, they would destroy the whole thing and they would start over. They would care for the, um, the text of the Word of God. And when the Word of God became, uh, I don't want to say corrupted, when it, when, it, when it began to wear out, they would destroy it. Sort of like the Boy Scouts will do for the American flag when it sort of wears out. And they would maintain the copies. They would preserve them. Um, that's the reason. Well, maybe you don't even know this. When you go to look at historical documents between the New Testament and the Old Testament, there are way, way, way more copies of the New Testament around the world in museums. I mean, hundreds of thousands of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. <clears throat> the reason that we have so many is because as the New Testament was being transmitted, <clears throat> there weren't scribes maintaining them to, to destroying them when they wore out. They, they, the, the, where the Old Testament... They had to meet a certain standard. So as they wore out, they would destroy them. And then they would create new ones after the destruction. So there were always a limited um, uh, amount of, of documents for the Old Testament. Now, this was a, a source of criticism for many years. Oh, how can we trust the Bible? How, can we, how do we know that the Old Testament is actually accurate? It's been, it's been manipulated over time. And the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is why the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was so powerful. 
They discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls basically in essentially 2,000 years after the life of Christ. The manuscripts that they found were in mint condition. They know that the manuscripts, they can date them from like 300 years before Christ. And when they found them and they started going through the Old Testament, um, guys with really thick glasses who are really smart and they compare and contrast various texts, they realized that the Old Testament that we have in our hands is like 99.9 out to infinity pure. The, like word for word in, the, in, in, in Isaiah, um, this great prophetic book, which has Isaiah 53, which is super critical that many critics would say that the, the prophecies in Isaiah 53 are, are so precise that somebody had to have written this after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They could not prophesy something like this. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls showed, no, this is a text from 400 years before Christ that was buried in a cave, and it's accurate. Okay, I'm way on a tangent here. <clears throat> but this is important. So, so we thank God for these scribes. And, and that, that, just for those of you who may be skeptics in here, that point one to complete the 100% purity, it's stuff. It, it's stuff. Um, how language changes. Or if you ever read a word that's written in English, it's the same word, and they like throw an extra U or they put an E somewhere, and it's like, well, we don't spell it like that, but it's the same word. It's things like that that are, there's, there's no inconsistency. It's more like a, a spelling changed over 2,000 years, uh, which happens. Um, okay, so these are the scribes. We thank God for them. When the, they, they mainly were Pharisees. The scribes were a part and majority were more connected to the Pharisees. But that just makes sense if you think about it because did the, did the Sadducees adhere to the whole Old Testament from Genesis to, to Malachi? No, they didn't. So the guys who really cared about the word of God, they would be more connected with the Pharisees. And to, to put it in sort of simple terms, well, we'll start with a more complicated simple term. They were like a lawyer. And so the Pharisees, as they were going about through their life and they'd have a decision to make, and they would basically go to their scribe and they'd say, am I allowed to do this? And the scribe would be all up on case law. Now, case law isn't necessarily, case law is I'm not an attorney, but I'm, I'm related to a bunch of them and I know some. And so that makes me good enough. And I watched a lot of Matlock as a kid, so um, I'm really qualified. So case law is there's law that's put in. Some, some politician writes up a law, but nobody knows how to interpret it until it actually goes before a judge. And then somebody goes before a judge and says, hey, I want to prosecute this person for this thing based on this law. And then they get everybody together. Like, well, we don't really know. And then the outcome of that trial then becomes case law to say they prosecuted this person with these circumstances. And now that becomes sort of like the standard. And so the scribes say, well, case law says there was a case over here in, in uh, you know, East Jerusalem the other day. And it, 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 you, can, you can do this action. In, in many ways, this, the really simplest term is scribes were essentially like caddies. Now, caddies follow golfers around the golf courses. The, the professional caddies are really amazing wealth of knowledge. They basically know the weather conditions. They know how each club, the golfer, you know, you see Tiger Woods go up to his car and he looks at the caddy and he's like, hey, based on these conditions, the, the cut of the grass, the moisture in the air, the wind, everything, what you need is you need a, th a three iron in this case and it'll get you what you need to do. They're the ones that are basically giving all of the wisdom, all of the backside to, to help them out. And so Jesus then brings these two people. These two groups of people would have been highly esteemed by the average Jewish person, the crowds and 
and his disciples. These are people that they would have respected. Not all of them are bad. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he was a Pharisee. Um, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, was a Pharisee, was a leader of them. Like, so they weren't all bad. So, so we're very quick to go black and white. Um, Jesus is going to confront them. And, and this whole chapter, it's going to go from, from bad to worse. Um, when we get to verse 13, there's going to be like seven or eight, woe to you, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Finally, woe to you, Jerusalem. This great condemnation coming from Jesus on these leaders. And so it says that the scribes have seated themselves on the chair of Moses. Now, the chair of Moses in a synagogue, there'll be a little concrete stool. And the leader of the the synagogue would sit there and he would teach from a seated position. And those in the synagogue would listen from a standing perspective. That would drive me crazy. I think I have it better being able to stand through church. As a kid, it was horrible sitting through church. So I shouldn't be saying this. It's great to sit. Enjoy your seats. Um, this actually is super common. This, this vernacular of being seated in this place, it's still a place of authority. Um, if you go to the academic world, um, those in the PhD world who are working through the, like their dissertation, trying to complete their dissertation, every PhD candidate will have a chair. And the chair is the person who's responsible um, for, for governing how they do, giving them the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Uh, they, they have full authority. Um, the Pope today, when the Pope speaks, he speaks when he's speaking from authority, when he has something, he's making an official declaration. It's called he's speaking from ex cathedra, which means he's speaking from the chair. That means, well, I'm not going to go into that, but, but it's a place of authority, super common. And so when Jesus says that, he, he's not even saying that the, the seat of Moses is bad, but you'll notice he says they place themselves there. They rush to that seat of authority and they basically have taken the reins from God that they are the ones in control. And so then uh, looking at this whole situation, there's a guy, France. He says the true target of this whole discourse is the crowds and the disciples who need to break free from the Pharisaic legalism. Um, these are people who were held hostage by religion. I, I don't want to ask the question. This is, not, this is one of those uh, rhetorical questions. But how many people over history have been hurt by religion? Like you have religion within Christianity and then all sorts of other religions. Religion has inflicted great damage on a huge portion of people. Like I'm still reeling from my friends a couple weeks ago to sit down and to see how hurt they are from this religion who was doing terrible things to them. But, but as far as my friends were concerned, they represented God. And now that they're sort of broken free from the religion... There's still like anger towards God and hurt and confusion based on what these religious people have done to them. And so in this setting, I sort of see Jesus addressing the crowds, addressing his disciples. And it's almost like a hostage rescue that he's trying to free them from this bondage that has been placed on them by men, not by God. But what he says is very interesting. Look what he says, verse 3. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. 
for they say things and they do not hold to them. I um, I've been I was reading this and I'm reading over and over again, and all I'm hearing is is my dad when I was a kid told used to tell me all the time, do as I tell you to do, don't do as I say, or no, do what I say, don't do what I do. And we all know as parents, or we should know, that doesn't work like that. People do, see this is where I'm like, gotta, you do what you see, you don't do what you're told. So if you're a child and you're following your parent, you can say what you want to your kids all day long, but where you teach them is through your example. And this is where maybe you've had the moment growing up when you're like, you do something or you say something and it might, you might not believe it in your head but all of a sudden, there's that moment like, I just became my parent. Like, how did this happen? Like, how did, how did this happen? And so I'm reading this, and it's not making sense to me because Jesus is scolding these guys. He, this, this whole chapter is, is, a, is a condemnation on them. And the people who look, follow them and look up to them, Jesus is trying to help them to break free from the bondage of religion that they're under. But so it do, it's almost like it doesn't compute in my mind when Jesus says, do and observe what they say, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. So as I think about this, it's like, well, we can't immediately condemn them for their teaching. So clearly that when they were in the Moses seat and they were teaching, they were teaching the word of God. And Jesus says what they're teaching, you do that, you listen to that, you observe that. But then when it moves from teaching to the application, the application of the teaching is where Jesus says, don't do that, don't follow them. See, now if you do some digging, they had made a bunch of rules and a bunch of, uh, every every, uh, rabbi had his yoke. His yoke was his teaching, not Y-O-L-K, like from a chicken egg, but Y-O-K-E. A good spelling test is for me. I'm doing well today, 100%. Um, a yoke, like that you put on an oxen. So they would refer to their teaching as their yoke. And so if you yoked yourself with a rabbi, that meant that you would follow and obey and live up to the standard and the application that he had sort of prescribed from the law. And so they'd made all of these rules that got out of control. I mean, it's so out of control and so, so far from what God had intended. Um, there are too many examples, and I decided it wouldn't be necessarily good to basically list all of the silly laws found in Judaism, even today. Like, there's just one little In the Old Testament, if you read about the Sabbath, the Sabbath simply, the, the, the law according to the scripture is very simple. God rested on the seventh day. You should have a day of rest. God wanted to give you a day of rest to be a blessing to you. Work for six days, take a day off, enjoy yourself, un- unwind, just relax. This is super simple. But then somebody takes that law so Jesus would say, obey the teaching that they taught. Now, the application part, then they have all of these lists and books about what, what constitutes work um, on the Sabbath. And so if you go to Israel today to 
a Hasidic Jew or a, a, like a, a law-abiding Jew, which would be Hasidic, but other people like as well, one of the things, somebody somewhere said, well, if you walk into an elevator on the Sabbath and you press floor number five, that's work. So we need to do something about that. So you go over to this special elevator, and this special elevator called the Sabbath elevator, it'll eventually come to you. And a door will open, and you get in. You don't have to press any buttons because it's just like the movie from Elf where he does all of the things on the thing, and it just stops on every floor all the way up and every floor on the way down. I don't think that that really has the spirit of it. Then somewhere, some rabbi said, you're allowed to travel so many steps from your house on a certain day. There's sort of parameters. But then there was one loophole that if you're traveling over a body of water, then you're, there's sort of like a, an extension. And I read about one Jewish guy that his way around getting a, 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 like out and about on Saturdays is he would take a water bottle and he would place it under the seat of his car and then he could drive wherever he wanted. And he was clear by the law because he was over a body of water. And so now the land restrictions. But, but, but we laugh. But can you imagine living bound by these things? It's terrible. And it still exists today in, in many respects. And I think that the difference is you can have good doctrine, but terrible application and, and principles from it. Um, I, I, I don't like to necessarily bash groups. I have a lot of... Um, I, I was introduced by marrying my wife um, to... Uh, what are referred to as like fundamentalist Christians. Fundamentalist is a broad word. It could be a good thing. Like I'm okay being a fundamentalist in the sense that I believe in the word of God. I believe in the, you know, the, the literal birth of Christ, his resurrection, these, these, the five fundamentals of the faith. But if we're going to go to like extreme Christianity, there are some groups, and I've met many of them, and many of them love Jesus, and they're sweet, sweet people. But then there are some that are sort of like the modern-day Pharisees, but I've come to see that if there's a person who approaches me and they say, well, we're, we're a missionary, we'd like to maybe talk to you about partnering up, and then I can go to the, their website and see their doctrine, and all of their doctrine looks fine. I would agree with every single point on, on their, um, what they believe. And it's almost harder to, to sort of identify because on paper, all of their doctrine could look fine, and it's harder to sort of see the application of it. Like it's like not always there, but, but some, like the less subtle ones are you go and suddenly you realize, oh, all of their Bible translations are in King James only. And there's nothing, or King James, there's nothing wrong with King James, but then you go down and you start digging and they think, well, the King James is the only English version that we're allowed to, to use. How you interact with people, how you sing songs, how you do, like all of these rules are sort of lumped in. And so to me, this is the closest thing that I could see where you could go there and you could listen to their doctrine and all of their points, I would totally 100% agree with doctrinally. But then when it comes to the part, part like the point of applying the doctrine that we agree with, how they apply it and the principles of ministry or philosophy of ministry, I would totally and completely disagree with them on a lot of points. So enough to where I would, I would distance myself from them because I don't believe that the heart of Christ is there. And I'm not making a blanket statement for all of them. I'm just giving an example. Um, okay. So Jesus says, do and observe what they teach. What they teach is good. 
But when it comes to their application, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move move them without so much as a finger. And he says they put all these burdens that God never intended to place on you, the, the burden of religion, the, the do this, do this, do this. You want to be right with God, then you have to do all of these things. And if you don't do these things, and these things are not things from the Scripture. There's like this, this burden placed upon them. There was a movie we showed here a few weeks, or a few weeks, a few years ago. Um, great movie, American, uh, American, Amazing Grace, by, about William Wilberforce, who was this man in, in, in England back in the late 1700s who was, was, a, was a catalyst in breaking England out of slave trading. And the movie starts, if you remember, it was this, it was this scene, uh, you know, because all movies in England have to start with a dark, drizzly, rainy day. And so, so as the movie's about to start along the screen, there's like a buggy that was broken down on the side of the road. And it's pouring rain, and there's a horse that's laying on the side of the road. And there's two guys that are there, and this one guy is just beating this horse, like, mercilessly. And then a second cart pulls up alongside. Two men get out of that cart, and one of the men, like, fraily, like, sick, coughing, walks up. And he says, um, basically, like, hey, if you stop beating the horse, it might have a chance to get up. And then the guy that was beating the horse, he wants to start beating the guy. But the second guy says, no, no, no. I saw this guy speak in, in Britain or London. And that's William Wilberforce. And so it sort of sets the stage that William Wilberforce is on this crusade to, to literally free those who have been bound by chains. And Jesus uses the same picture to show what religion does to the individual, that these chains get so burdened on the shoulders that you can't even walk. But the religious leaders... They're not lifting their finger to either try to apply them themselves and they're intentionally trying to hold the people down because that's where their authority comes from. It's, it's really, really sad. And, I, and it's the farthest from, remember, just a few verses back, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus says, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul. And the second is just like it, to love one another as you want to be loved. And so this picture painted here, this, they tie heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move, move them with so much as a finger. That doesn't sound like loving God and loving others to me. And I think that there's great caution for today. Um, it's so easy to slip into religion. It's so easy to, to, to fall into you need to start doing things a certain way that we as a church truly need to guard um, grace. Uh, you know, the, this, this, this name change that sort of came about, um, you know, it's on the website kind of explaining more of, 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 of the why. The church's name for many years, from 1947 to 1991-ish, was Grace Trinity Church. And so it's kind of a going back to the old um, but the more I consider the name Grace Point, that this is a place where, where, where lives, our lives intersect with God's grace, the, the, there, there's nothing more profound than God's grace. You could spend your lifetime trying to master grace and understand it and trying to comprehend it with your little brain. 
my little brain, not to insult you, I'm talking about myself. I'm like, you guys have really big ones. And, um, um, but I'll never, I'll never forget in seminary, there was a student that was really wrestling with dealing with some cult or another cult, and, and this teacher was known for his mastery of like sort of interacting with false religions. And the student asked a question, sort of like, hey, how, how do we address this group? And the teacher kind of closed his books and kind of, you know, did the whole pull his glasses off. There's something powerful, I think, you know, when you pull your glasses off. And he's like, listen, if you want to know how to handle these groups, any group, I don't care what it is, you devote the next years of your life to mastering and understanding what God's grace is all about. And if you understand God's grace, you'll be able to decimate any false religion because it, that's, that's, that's the jugular, that's what separates everything. Christian, true biblical Christianity Grace is what, what distinguishes it from all other anything. And Jesus is dealing with this issue at the heart. Um, all of these burdens, all of the law-keeping. Paul in Galatians, Galatians is likely the, the, probably the first New Testament book that was written. Um, Paul, this great Pharisee, he was one of these bad guys. Like literally at this time of speaking, Paul the apostle was one of the quote-unquote bad guys. And so then when he, by the Spirit, pens Galatians, when you get to Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, in that section, Paul says, you know, essentially, the law was never designed to save you. It was never there for you to do um, so that you could get right with God. The whole purpose always from day one was to be the standard, the boilerplate, that as you try to do the law, you would realize that you can't do the law. And, and he says the whole purpose was to point you to Christ. It was a school teacher. It was like training wheels to lead you to God. And now that Christ has come, we are no longer bound by the law. We're bound to Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And I mentioned to you about the yoke and the rabbi. In Matthew eleven thirty, Jesus says, come to me for my yoke. His teaching is easy and my burden is light. This is grace. The polar opposite of everything that he's confronting by these people. Then he goes on to say in verse 5, he's going to describe these religious leaders through a, through, through a series of things. Uh, but they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. For they brought in their phylactery. Phylacteries are they, if you go to Israel, you'll see at the Wailing Wall, there's guys with things swirled around their hands. They hold them in the hand. There's a little box there. A little box has some scripture. Then they have it on their forehead. Um, I'd say this is an over-literalization of the passage that they go to from Isaiah because they don't, it also, there's a third one that they don't do. It says you're supposed to have the scripture in your mouth and they don't walk around with scripture in their mouth. So they kind of do the two that are convenient. And the third one, uh, the, the point is, is that you're supposed to have the word of God within you. And so he says they'll take their little boxes and the, the more spiritual guys, they'll have really, really big boxes and really, really big boxes on their forehead. And then they have their little, their little uh, prayer uh, cords. Um, I'm lacking the actual, I'll find it here, verse 5-ish, phylacteries and tassels. I mean, Jesus would have dressed like this. Remember, there's a story of Jesus, uh, some lady goes and she touched his tassels, his prayer tassels, and she was healed. He said, hey, who, who, my energy, I felt it, who touched me? like, there's thousands of people here, Jesus. Who, what do you mean who touched you? But that's a whole other story. So, but they, they wear these things to try to make them look better from the outside. Um, they, they love the place 
of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. I want to get to this rabbi in a second. I'll never forget my first, um, my first Easter at this church. Uh, I'd been here for almost a year, and to be honest, I didn't really know a whole lot about pastoring when I came to the church. I was a Navy SEAL, and not a lot of this stuff translated very well. Um, <laughs> and I was always at a church at a church plant where we didn't like have a, a building, and, and uh, but, but now it's like restarting this church as a bunch of elderly people, and so Easter comes around, and I thought, what, what's a pastor supposed to do on Easter? And so I thought, I'm supposed to wear a suit. So I like went to my closet, dug out a suit that I hadn't worn in like, like maybe ever. I don't know. Like, so I came into church. My suit was all tightened up, and I'm like up here, and I'm talking about Easter. And I remember there were visitors on Easter. Like there were some people here. And we live in Valley Center. This is like cowboy land. No, I was the only one in a suit. And then these visitors came in, and they looked at me like, oh, you're the pastor wearing a suit. And I remember kind of feeling like, wrong inside. Like, don't be misled by my suit. Like, uh, this isn't me. And that was the last Easter I wore a suit to because I realized that my being in a suit projected something like this. Um, I have a friend that I tease. I won't say his name, but I tease him in person. He, He is at a church in Pacific Beach, really great church, but he's like with all the cool people. Like, I think that they wear, like, bathing suits and flip-flops to church. And he, he normally is dressed like that everywhere he goes. I mean, he is, he's one of the cool kids. But on Sundays, he shows up in a suit every single Sunday. And I'm like, dude, why do you, you're in Pacific Beach. He's like, well, I just want to have a high esteem. And I, he tends more on the legalistics. Like, he has a little bit of a bent that way. I'm like, you're in Pacific Beach. Nobody wears suits ever. Like I, like we went to we were at our funeral that we went to just on Friday. There were no suits there. Like and it wasn't like it was certainly for Grandpa Hilton. It wasn't being disrespectful, not being a suit. Like like we wanted to respect him, so we wore jeans. I didn't have a bolo tie, or I would have worn a bolo tie. Like I, maybe that's on my to do list to get a bolo tie, but uh, that's a different subject. I, my need is gone, so I don't. So don't bring me a bolo tie. I um. um but so you do these things. And I, and I confess, like I, I still, there's, there's a side of me that struggles and I think it's my, my Catholic background. So if I'm sitting in church, I have no problem wearing shorts and flip-offs. I don't care what you're wearing. I'm just thankful that you are wearing some clothes. Um, but I don't really care what you're wearing when you come to church. If, and if I'm sitting in church, I really don't care what the guy up here is wearing. Like I, I really don't care if the guy's in a t-shirt and, and shorts and flip-flops. Like that's how I came to Christ. But I'll confess, there's, this, there's something in me, I think, from my Catholic background, that when I come to the pulpit and I need to pr- preach, there's something within me that says, I can't wear Levi's. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just sort of dealing with my, letting you guys have the into my conscience. And there's nothing in the scripture about what, like, Jesus talks about the heart. He doesn't care about what you're wearing. My, my conscience sort of, like, bugs me in this way. But it's so easy to slip into this religious subtly that, that it's, it, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to spot. And, and it's certainly if it's in your own heart, it's way hard to spot. And so Jesus sort of is, is confronting these guys. 
that they're trying to make them something that they're not. I stumbled across a story this week, hilarious story. I don't know if you guys remember this. It was the only time I watched basketball is for March Madness. And so two years ago, or two and a half years ago, there's a story um, a, a Virginia College sophomore, Danny Foley. Uh, you can Google his name. You can see the pictures. He wanted, to be, he wanted to be a part of his school's men's basketball team, even if that meant faking his way onto the court. Uh, Danny noticed that all of his team's assistant coaches wore the same suit with bright orange tie. So before Virginia's conference championship game against Duke on March 16th, 2014, he and his friends went searching for some cheap knockoffs. Uh, he found everything he needed at Walmart, a suit jacket, uh, suit pants, dress shoes, dress socks, a white uh, dress shirt, and orange tie. The next morning, he bought a $30 nosebleed ticket uh, just to get in the door, and he headed to the game. Uh, during a TV timeout, Danny made a move, confidently marching past an usher, usher onto the court. Danny said, I walked right behind the cheerleaders and onto the court and joined the team's huddle on the court, following his his team's uh, big win, he went for an even bigger thrill. When the game's final buzzer sounded with Virginia's uh, defeating Duke 72 to 63, Danny joined his quote-unquote teammates and in the handshake line. As a as a confetti fell around him, Danny, Danny got to shake hands with you know Coach K, the infamous Coach K. I can't even say his real last name, the legendary coach for Duke. Photos from the end of the game showed Danny wearing a championship T-shirt over his suit and smiling in the midst of the confetti. So there's, there's pictures on Google. You can see this kid. Like, he's got his cheap suit on, and you know as soon as you win the championship game, they have all the T-shirts. So he's got his T-shirt over his suit, in line shaking Coach K, like sitting there. And then all of a sudden, the athletic director from Virginia goes to him and says, now, where are you on staff exactly? And he's like, well, just something. And he's sort of like, and then he like runs to the car and drives out there, but all over the internet, he's like on the court, like confetti flying everywhere. Great story. So there's a lot of different applications that I can use with this one, and it's, it'll probably come up again. Um, but, but, but it'd be super easy for this kid, like if he continued to get away with this, to suddenly start believing that he actually is a part of the team and that he is actually on the, like the, the, the championship winning, that he's on the coaching staff, that he has a place up there. Um, and I think that the application is, is that these Jewish re- leaders, they had all of the pomp, they had all of the show, they had been playing this game for long enough that they actually believed that much of God's glory belonged with them that they were actually the ones who were in control. That God was sort of something that they held the rights to. And so Jesus is confronting them for this issue. Now, this idea of rabbi, verse 7, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. Understanding this word is going to help you understand the rest. Does anyone here actually know what the word rabbi means? Some would say teacher, which we've sort of, we've sort of translated that way. Um, literally rabbi, and what it meant then was the great one. Like this is the utmost respect that you would look up to this individual. And so they love to be in the marketplace. What's about the marketplace? That's where everybody's around. And then they have people to call out rabbi, which in their language it would have been Hey, the great one. Hey, great one over there. Could you come talk to me? Or can I go talk to you? And so this 
this whole issue of, of pride and arrogance. And so it's from this that Jesus says, but do not be called rabbi. One is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father for the one for one is your father. He who is in heaven, do not be called leaders for one is your leader. That is Christ. When I first started dabbling in Protestant circles, my, my, my shift from Catholicism to, to being a Protestant, it was subtle. It wasn't, it wasn't like I had this big epiphany. I just, there was a boring church and then there was a not boring church. And so I was sort of like a, a Catholic going to a, in a Protestant setting. And this was, one per, this was like one verse that a bunch of the Protestants used, used to throw at me. Like, oh, you go to Catholic church and you call the priest father. And Jesus says, don't do that. And so I said, oh, that was like, and I'm not going to go with the priest think I don't, like, that's, like, I don't know. I just remember that this was a struggle for me. And I come to this verse. I'm like, well, yeah, well, okay, I get the father thing. But there's a lot of Protestants that are okay with the term teacher. And there's a lot of Protestants that are okay with the term leader. And I know a lot of Protestants that still refer to their father as father. And so it can kind of like, there's a little inconsistency here. And so this isn't like an absolute prohibition by Jesus for using these terms. In fact, Jesus was called rabbi, which you can get a little star for Jesus because he's actually his God. Like he's... But then Paul called himself a father in a bunch of different places. He also referred to other Christians as his children. And he also referred to himself as a teacher. And there's other places like, hey, if you're going to be a teacher, then, then this. And I think, that the, I think that the idea here is... What the point that Jesus is making is if you hold these title and you suddenly think that you're better than other people, that's where the problem occurs. If you are functioning in a certain capacity, but you're still equal, you're brothers, as he says here, that's okay. Um, you, you know, Chris Matthews is a missionary we support in, in, uh, in Spain. And I remember that when he was going to come first visit us and I was kind of interacting with him and, and I said, hey, Chris, do, like, do I need to call you Dr. Matthews, Dr. Chris, doctor? What, what do you want? He's like, no, call me Chris. He's like, in the seminary setting, I'm Dr. Matthews. But when I'm in the church, I'm brother. I'm not, the doctor means nothing. I'm, I'm just follower of Christ. And I, and I think that that's the heart. And, and from a practical perspective, you know, there were some, like it's not like a, it's definitely not like a rule here. Um, some people will refer to me as Pastor Gunner, which I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Like, I have no problem, you know, that some people just want to use a title uh, for respect or to teach their kids about certain perspective. Like, I'm, I, I'm not, uh, that, that's not my, like, I, am, I, I serve as a pastor. My, my, my calling here, my role is a shepherd of this flock. But, but r- the reality is, I'm just Gunner. And so, so that's so I'm Gunner, and God has called me to to pastor to shepherd, but but I'm not. I mean, I might be a little bit higher up here, but I'm not higher than anybody else here. We're all going through life, and my role, um, I've been called to serve in this capacity. It's not because I'm special, and I think I'm transparent with you all enough to you all should know that I'm just a guy that loves Jesus and trying to do my best. Um, so I like I, like I laugh when I go to churches and I see the front row parking that's like reserved for the pastor. The first thing I think is, 
why in the world would a pastor anywhere need a spot that's reserved for him? Like, I'm the first one here. I'm the last one gone every single week. Like, I have a choice. I can park wherever I want, whatever I want. Like, so I started thinking, what kind of slacker is this? Does he just roll in, like, when everybody's here and they have to hold a spot for him? You know, other times, I know my SEAL background, like, when we have potlucks, like, I'm super thankful that there are some people who say, oh, pastor, pastor, you got to have front of line. And my heart's like, no, 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 no. The leader, like, my, I eat last. I, like, there'll be food. Like, there'll be plenty of food here. Like, I'll be fine. You guys go first. Um, it, it's very easy to sort of start taking ourselves way too seriously, um, which, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Um, verse 11. He says, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. Th- this this, Jesus has been saying this the whole way through Matthew. At the Sermon on the Mount, back in Matthew chapter 5, he opens up, blessed are the poor in spirit. Every time, there's too many to list. His disciples would come to him and say, hey, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And he'd pull up a little kid. He's like, you want to be great, you be like this one. And over and over and over again, they just didn't get it. And he says to them over and over, if you want to be great, then serve. Think, don't think of yourselves too highly. Put others first. How do you want to be treated? Will you do that to others? He goes on to say, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It's interesting. This stands in contrast with the verse, the, the scribes and Pharisees, that they place themselves in the seat of honor. And here it says, if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. But if you humble yourself, if you take the, the low road, then let him exalt you in his timing. Um, if you'll turn with me, we'll close over in Philippians chapter 2. Um, this is probably one of the greatest passages on this subject. Paul writing, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, he writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ." So the passage that's going to follow is very well known. But Paul writes, you can read the first four verses there, but the whole idea, he's trying to help the follower of Christ to have the same heart in which Christ had. And that's a heart of humility. And when I think about this whole picture in the temple, Jesus is actually on the outside of the temple, in the temple courts. He's at this point, been condemned by the religious leaders. He will in days be arrested and he will be executed in a, in, a, in a shameful, horrible way, naked, beaten on a cross on the outside of town, essentially at the dump. And here he is, he's in the court of the Gentiles and he's teaching, but in his teaching, in his interaction, he is demonstrating total servant leadership, total humility, And so Paul says, have this attitude yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. This word is kenosis. It's it's to remove his deity, to come to, to earth, human form. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made into the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so this is the ultimate example of humility. And you can read all about the great Christology showing that God has ultimately exalted him to the right hand of the Father. But the point that Paul is making here is the same point that that Christ is making to the crowds, that if you want to follow him, if you want to find greatness, the way this is, it's through serving one another, through loving one another. Um, And so this week, the question is, how can you better serve? How can we... How can we better love one another? How can we better be like Christ as we go through our days? And so, Father, I, I know I need help in this area. If we're honest, we all do. Lord, I thank you for the wonderful example of Christ being God, coming to earth as a man, limiting abilities, suffering with us, going through temptations as we go through them. It's a humility that I don't think we can quite fathom. Father, I pray that as we uh, grow closer with you, as we grow to to love you and to know you, Lord, I ask that you would um, help us to have a, a humble spirit like Christ that we would view one another through your eyes, that we would love one another as you loved us. And Father, we have so much work in our hearts that needs to be done, and we can't do it by our own strength, our own uh, doing. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves before you, and we ask, Father, that you would do a work within us. Lord, help us uh, just to honor you, to live for you, um, to be pleasing to you with our lives, with our hearts, with our thoughts. And that's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.